Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about prostate cancer with Dr. Joseph Kim. Dr. Kim is an associate professor of internal medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Dr. Kim, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do. Okay. So I'm a geomedical oncologist. Um, I specialize in taking care of patients with prostate cancer and other urinary tract cancers. I've been here at Yale for the last nine years or so. Um, I received my training um, at the National Cancer Institute of NIH. Um, since I came to Yale, um, I have been taking care of patients with prostate cancer and other tumor malignancies. Um, I also specialize in uh, doing clinical trials. Great. So, you know, it's Prostate Cancer Awareness Month, and many people have heard about prostate cancer, but there's still a lot of questions. So I'm hoping that we can unpack a lot of that today. So to kick us off, why don't you tell us about the epidemiology of prostate cancer? How common is it? Who gets it? Um, and uh, how lethal or not lethal is it? So that's a very good question. So prostate cancer is a very common cancer. Other than skin cancer, prostate cancer is the most common cancer in American men. And um, according to the, um, the epidemiology, um, they estimated that um, about 260, um, over 260,000 new cases estimated to have prostate cancer this year. And about uh, 34,000 men would unfortunately die of prostate cancer. As you see this number, not everyone dies of prostate cancer. Uh, clearly, there's a certain phenotype that is very lethal, um, uh, prostate cancer. And it's very important for us to understand who are these group of patients, how aggressive it could be in identifying these patients and treating the patients um, and improve, uh, to improve the outcomes of these patients. Um, so who gets prostate cancer? Um, you know, the most um, uh, you know, common risk factor is the age. The older the man is, more likely you will develop prostate cancer. And also, it appears that some ethnic background seems to play a role. Uh, for reasons unclear, um, African-American men seems to have uh, prostate cancer. They seem to be somewhat more aggressive. I mean, also, there are other uh, risk factors, too, such as, um, you know, well-described uh, genetic uh, syndromes, such as BRCA syndrome, Lynch syndrome. Patients with these genetic syndromes um, tend to have prostate cancer in early age and also have somewhat aggressive uh, biology. So tell us a little bit more about the screening for prostate cancer, because it seems to me that that has had its ebbs and flows over the years from digital rectal exam to PSA uh, to, you know, potentially even more uh, sophisticated forms of screening. And yet not everybody requires screening, different ages for starting screening and stopping screening, uh, different intervals uh, at which one should get screening. What are the latest guidelines in terms of screening for prostate cancer? So that's a very good question. I think the prostate cancer screening has evolved for the last um, couple of decades or so. It's been very confusing because the guideline has changed um, you know, over the last few years. So the latest guideline is that you have to talk to your doctor and that your doctor should have a very well-involved discussion about the prostate cancer screening. In other words, if you have a you know strong family history, if you're 
your father, brother, or your uncles have prostate cancer in early age, um, you should be concerned about it. And you can talk to your doctor about this and see what other tests uh, you could do to screen for prostate cancer. The first common, uh, the most commonly used test um, to screen for prostate cancer is a blood test called PSA. Uh, it's a simple blood draw. And the normal value is four. Um, if your PSA is higher than four, this may raise some concern, um, you know, for you and for your doctor, and you may get referred to a urologist um, for further evaluation. And the other uh, method you can screen for prostate cancer will be uh, doing a what we'll digital rectal examination, which will be done by your primary care physician. Again, if you have any symptoms um, in your urination, such as, you know, weak stream, urgency, urinary frequency, or urinary tract infection that's not going away, um, you know, your doctor should evaluate this further to evaluate for the underlying pathology. And so for patients who are at average risk, uh, let's suppose that they don't have a, a family history, they don't have a genetic mutation. When should they start getting uh, PSA testing and, and how frequently should that occur? So there's no general consensus about what age to start the PSA screening for general population. And that has been the debate um, over the last few years. Generally speaking, age 55 is the age that they begin to talk about prostate cancer screening in patients with risk factors. So um, if you are 55 and older, if you have any concerned about the prostate cancer, you can discuss your concern with your doctor, especially if you have a strong family history. If you don't, then you don't necessarily have to have, uh, you know, prostate cancer screening. What goes into that decision-making? Because, you know, when you start off by saying prostate cancer is one of the most common cancers, um, presumably not everybody has symptoms when they develop prostate cancer. So if you're at average risk and you don't have symptoms, what's the likelihood of you being diagnosed with prostate cancer? And if it's, you know... A relatively frequent event, why don't we have screening on a regular basis like we do for other kinds of cancers like breast cancer or colon cancer? Mm -hmm. That's a very good question. And that's um, in part because of the long natural history of the prostate cancer and very diverse biology of the prostate cancer. And as I mentioned on epidemiology, as you see, not everybody dies of prostate cancer. I think it's very important to identify this lethal phenotype, but majority of the prostate cancer can be very indolent in biology, meaning that, yep, you, you, may, have, you may develop a prostate cancer in your lifetime, but you may not die of prostate cancer. So having a diagnosis is one, going through a procedures and treatments is another. And mm. whether you die of prostate cancer is, is what we are really afraid of. Right. So really, a lot of things goes in when we are making a decision, uh, you know, about the prostate cancer screening. Um, I think the, the future of prostate cancer screening is really identifying um, those who are at, really at risk of developing prostate cancer, not just prostate cancer, but lethal prostate cancer. And indolent prostate cancer, they may not need to be diagnosed because, you know, they may live with the disease, uh, but they may not die of the disease um, so that's sort of uh, things that's right. goes on behind the mind. Yep. 
Yeah. And so you mentioned a few of the factors that uh, tend to be associated with more aggressive disease. So being African-American, having a family history, particularly a a genetic mutation and so on. And so let's suppose you you did fit into that category and you went and you had uh, a conversation with your doctor who decided to screen you with a PSA. And you mentioned that the, the normal value is four. And let's suppose that your value was higher than four. What does that mean? Does that automatically mean that you have prostate cancer or what happens after that? So, I mean, this will generate a lot of que- a lot of questions and discussions with your doctor. The first step is to be referred to a urologist. Um, not all elevated PSA means um, prostate cancer. Um, sometimes having inflammation in the prostate gland or having some, you know, uh, some procedures done uh, with the prostate gland. Um, these uh, conditions can raise the PSA value too. So, um, you don't have to be uh, too worried about it, but uh, clearly deserve a conversation with a urologist and he will guide you, he or she will guide you about the next steps. Usually what happens as a next step is that, um, you know, depending on the timeline, um, he or she may want to repeat the PSA value to see whether it's a real elevation or false elevation. If it's cons- confirmed to be elevated, then um, depending on your medical conditions, your doctor will talk to you about whether uh, you should get a prostate biopsy or not to monitor Um and those other conversations you would have with your urologist. Yeah. And ultimately, if you do end up having a prostate biopsy, and if that biopsy indeed confirms prostate cancer, there's a whole system of, of grading of prostate cancer that really influences whether we need to be more aggressive or less aggressive in terms of its management. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. So we use what we call GLSEN score or grade groups. Um, these are uh, the pathological terms to describe the um, what histological assessment of the prostate cancer. And um, you know, the higher the grade is, a more ugly looking on the prostate cancer cell is. In other words, this may predict more of aggressive biology of the prostate cancer. But uh, they're also a low-grade prostate cancer as well. So these um, tumors may have more indolent biology. And so talk to us a little bit more about that, because one of the things that I think may be confusing for people is the fact that some people may be diagnosed with a a more indolent prostate cancer. And for them, they may have, you know, watchful waiting or active surveillance, Um, whereas others uh, who may have a more aggressive prostate cancer um, may have other treatment modalities. So, so at what point is that decision made? Is there a particular Gleason score cutoff that helps us to decide which category people fall into? Or what are the factors that go into that decision making? Yeah, so when we make a decision on treatment, there are multiple factors to consider. Gleason score, as you mentioned, is uh, one of the critical one, but also we look at the uh, you know tumor staging, patient's preference, patient's comorbidities, and life expectancy. A lot of things factor in in making a treatment decision. To answer your questions about the Gleason score, generally you will hear Gleason score six, seven, 
eight or nine or ten. So glycine six is generally speaking a low grade um, prostate cancer. Uh, oftentimes, um, patients are very less likely to die of prostate cancer. So oftentimes, uh, patients with glycine six disease they can be monitored uh, with what we call active surveillance or watch for waiting. Glycine score seven is sort of like intermediate risk prostate cancer. Uh, again, depending on other um, uh, conditions, um, you could talk to your doctor about being treated, um, whether surgery or radiation. Um, but for glycine score 8, 9, or 10, these are rather higher grade uh, prostate cancer um, where um, you really want to consider uh, receiving more definitive treatments with uh, radiation or surgery. Um, so again, glycine score is one of the factors that I'm going in making a treatment decision, but we should also look about um, think about other factors as well. And so when patients are, are treated with active surveillance, what does that mean? Does that mean that we just kind of uh, uh, close our eyes and say, well, you know, you have indolent disease or are these people followed? And if they're followed with imaging modalities, what modality is that? And, and how frequently are, are people monitored or are they monitored with PSA? Like what does active surveillance really look like? Yep. So it's an active surveillance, not passive. Uh, active surveillance, we go in with an active surveillance with the goal of intervening at some point. Um, again, this discussion would happen with the urologist primarily. Um, so during the active surveillance, patient will follow with the PSA once a, month, once a year or a prostate MRI to really understand the morphology, the, how the prostate tumor looks in the prostate gland. Um, they also follow with the digital rectal examinations. So they follow um, these patients very carefully um, throughout the course um, to really make a decision as to when to intervene um, the prostate cancer. Oftentimes, you may end up receiving a surgery or radiation therapy, but often other times you may not need to be intervened um, for uh, low-risk prostate cancer. Great. Well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. And when we come back, we're going to learn more about the treatment of prostate cancer patients with my guest, Dr. Joseph Kim. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where the gynecologic oncology program brings together a team of clinicians whose focus is to care for women with gynecologic cancers. Learn more at YaleCancerCenter.org slash G-Y-N-O-N-C. There are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking, as smoking involves the potent drug nicotine. Quitting smoking is a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment, as it's been shown to positively impact response to treatments, decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies, and increase rates of survival. Tobacco treatment programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital. All treatment components are evidence-based, and patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications, as well as smoking cessation counseling that stresses appropriate coping skills. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Joseph Kim. We're talking about the care of patients with prostate cancer in honor of Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. Now, right before the break, Dr. Kim, you were mentioning that many patients have 
indolent prostate cancer, which even if diagnosed, um, may be indolent in its course, and it may be followed with active surveillance uh, with PSAs and, and so on and so forth. For the patients who have more aggressive disease, can you talk to us a little bit more about their management? So first of all, how do you know if a patient's diagnosed and let's say that they have more aggressive disease? So we talked a little bit about the Gleason score and you mentioned that an 8, 9 or a 10 uh, is more aggressive. If a patient is diagnosed with such disease, how do we know that this cancer is confined only to the prostate and hasn't spread all over their body? Is there some sort of staging test that we need to do before we embark upon therapy? Yep. So that's a very good question. So we, yes, we do um, several imaging modalities to really understand the extent of the prostate cancer. So most commonly used uh, imaging modality we use is a prostate MRI. This will really give us a better description of what's going on with the prostate gland and the tumors and how the tumor is invading around the surroundings, uh, around the structures nearby. Um, so we use a prostate MRI um, and if we are worried that this is a high-risk disease, then we often get staging scans uh, with a CT scan and the whole body bone scan. Uh, we get whole body bone scan because bone is a very common site that prostate cancer can spread to. So, um, you know, we get CT scan and the bone scan and the prostate MRI to understand um, the extent of the disease. In some settings, um, you know, when we are making decisions as to what kind of a local therapy to do. Um, and in, in a patient we highly suspect to have metastatic disease, we now use a new imaging called PSMA PET CT scan to see whether a patient in fact has a metastatic disease or not. Tell us more about this PSMA. Is that the same as a regular FDG PET or is it special for the prostate? Tell us more about that and in what patients you would use that as opposed to simply using a CT scan and a whole body bone scan. Mm -hmm. So that's a very good question. So PSMA it stands for prostate-specific membrane antigen. Um, as the name implies, it's supposed to be very specific to prostate cancer. So if you think about the scan, um, you know, this is actually much more sensitive um, PET imaging than the um, conventional CT scan or the bone scan. This is different from FTG PET CT scan. FTG PET CT scan is looking for hypermetabolism of the glucose, but here we are looking for the tumor cells that are expressing PSMA, and we are uh, trying to detect um, uh, you know, micros uh, very low uh, levels of prostate cancers um, with you by using this uh, tracer, PSMA tracer. So this uh, PSMA PET scan has um, about three indications. So in localized setting, in patients who just received the diagnosis of high-risk prostate cancer, and uh, your doctor is discussing about whether we need to do a surgery, radiation, or whether we should do a systemic therapy. Based on other clinical parameters, such as PSA level, Gleason score, uh, which really raise our concern that this patient may in fact have a metastatic disease, then uh, we may actually get a PSMA PET CT scan to document and to prove the patient has a metastatic disease. Um, so in such setting, we can avoid uh, doing surgery or, surgery or radiotherapy for that group of patients. So we use this scan um, in making a treatment decision for whether patients receive local, uh, local therapy versus uh, systemic therapy. Uh, and the caveat for this is that uh, this can detect uh, sometimes uh, false signals to false positives as well. So 
one has to really look at um, the imaging um, data uh, in the clinical context as well. So let's suppose a patient is diagnosed with a, a more aggressive uh, prostate cancer and their doctor decides that they're going to get treatment, um, staging scans, whether a CT and bone scan or a PSMA PET are done and, and no metastatic disease is found. So this is localized uh, to the, the prostate itself. Um, talk to us a little bit about how that's treated. You mentioned surgery, you mentioned radiotherapy, you also mentioned sustainability systemic therapy. How do you decide which modality a patient will be treated with and or is a combination often used? Tell us more about how prostate cancer is treated in that setting. Yeah, so a lot of factors going goes in in treating patients with a localized prostate cancer that is high risk. The options are, are several. Um, as mentioned, so surgery is one, radiation therapy with uh, hormone therapy is another. Uh, sometimes Systemic therapy followed by radiotherapy uh, is another approach that we can take in treating um, this group of patients. And again, you know, in making a treatment decision, um, a lot of factors goes in in terms of patient's preference as well. We counsel them about the potential complications of each of these approaches. Again, our intent here is a cure, the long-term cure. So whenever we make a decision on a certain treatment, uh, we have to keep in mind of their long-term complications as well. So um, generally speaking, with a surgery, uh, yes, we can cure some of these patients, but uh, some of these patients may end up with uh, long-term uh, urinary issues or erectile dysfunctions and other uh, you know, long-term complications. The rates are relatively low, but again, patients would have to be counseled about that. And uh, with the radiation therapy, um, again, patients will receive radiation therapy, about five to six weeks of radiation therapy, along with the hormonal therapy. Um, and these patients would have a very nice response in their PSA and their clinical improvement. But the long-term complication of this treatment would be sometimes this can cause some um, issues in the rectum area, bladder area, some abnormal blood vessels, and, and sometimes this can cause second malignancy as well in these organs. How often does that occur? Because I can imagine that patients who have just been diagnosed with prostate cancer may not want to hear that one of the potential risks of their treatment is getting yet another cancer. Uh, so is that pretty uncommon? That is a good question. Again, remember, we are going in with a cure intent treatment. Uh, in other words, we want to see our patients 10 years out. 20 years out and 25 years out. So the risk of having this second malignancy with the radiotherapy is there's a time factor. Um, so, you know, in patients who live long enough, um, you know, after being treated with, um, you know, radiotherapy for prostate cancer, um, I don't know the exact the percentage of this, but uh, we do see second malignancies, but uh, relatively this is uncommon. I would say less than 5%. Okay. Now, you also mentioned um, endocrine therapy or hormone therapy. For which patients is that recommended and what are the side effects? Yeah. So, hormone therapy is very commonly used systemic treat, uh, therapy uh, to treat uh, prostate cancer. So, when we say hormone therapy, um, we have to understand the biology of the prostate cancer. So, prostate cancer is really a testosterone or androgen-driven cancer. So, what we do first to treat prostate cancer is to lower the testosterone by giving another uh, hormone therapy called GnRH agonist or GnRH antagonist. Um, this is uh, what we call a shot that we give once every three months or four months or 
on a monthly basis, depending on the dose. Um, so when patients receive this um, hormone injection, um, oftentimes patients will experience hot flash, uh, you know, male menopause-like symptoms, um, some irritability. Uh, they may have some fatigue, uh, losing muscle mass, gaining fat. Um, those are um, common side effects that we see uh, with endocrine therapy in prostate cancer. Yeah. It sounds like many patients may not particularly love those symptoms, especially if they're if they're young. Um, are there other systemic therapy options uh, for uh, young patients? So um, there are other systemic therapy that we use to treat uh, prostate cancer. Um, you know, mostly uh, still hormone th- hormonal. Hormonal therapy. Uh, we have other uh, oral hormonal therapies. We have uh, immunotherapies uh, and other uh, chemotherapies and novel um, therapies as well. Um, but these systemic therapies are in, um, indicated for patients with metastatic uh, prostate cancer. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about that. Um, if a patient is diagnosed with metastatic cancer. Um, is systemic therapy really the mainstay of therapy and what can they expect in terms of their management? So when patients hear the word metastatic disease, um, it can be uh, a big shocker for many of our patients. But I like to reassure our patients that uh, these systemic therapies do work, um, especially with the hormonal therapy. Um, the chance of benefiting these patients is nearly 100%. So uh, other than hormonal therapy, we use um, you know other um, oral hormonal therapies and chemotherapies to maximize the benefit of the treatment to improve the outcomes um, of our patients. And so, you know, when we think about all of these therapies, the endocrine therapies, uh, the systemic chemotherapies, immunotherapies, and all of the side effects that go along with them, you know, the list that you mentioned was. Um, n- not particularly something that I think a lot of patients would be very enthused about. Um, are there ways that you can help them get through those side effects or ameliorate those side effects so that they're, they still can have a reasonably good quality of life, especially if they're going to live, as you mentioned, 10, 20, 25 years out? Yep. So, um, you know, if the patients experience really significant hot flash um, or other side effects, um, you know, we sometimes use um, other uh, supplements to ameliorate um, some of their side effects. But actually, uh, in patients with metastatic disease, um, these patients have symptoms of the cancer, such as pain, fatigue, and other cancer-related symptoms. So, Actually, when they start this hormonal therapy, actually, they do feel better. They feel better. Uh, their pain goes away. Uh, they regain their energy level. They actually do feel better while they are on treatment. But for patients who have no symptoms at baseline, yes, these patients will experience some of the side effects. And there are the supplements or the medication that we can use to treat um, um, those endocrine therapy-related side effects. So, Tell us about some of the new and novel things that are exciting in de- coming down the pipeline for prostate cancer management. Uh, you mentioned at the top of the show that you're very interested in clinical trials. Clinical trials always make us think about exciting new developments that might be helpful for our patients. So what's new in prostate cancer? What can we expect in the coming years? 
So um, the latest development in prostate cancer is a treatment called uh, PSMA-targeted uh, radi- uh, radioligand therapy. Um, as I mentioned earlier, um, this is in a way uh, targeted uh, radiation therapy in patients who have uh, PSMA-positive uh, prostate cancer, uh, which have become refractory to multiple lines of therapy. Um, you know, these treatments can be used for this group of patients, and the studies have shown that um, you know patients receiving this class of therapy actually did much better in terms of their symptoms, in terms of the disease control, and their overall survival. So that is one of the newest treatments that we have, and there are other ongoing trials going on to really use this therapy in an earlier setting and in combination with other therapies as well. So we are very excited about this um, new class of therapy. Is this widely available or is this available only on clinical trial? So actually, this therapy is uh, was recently approved by the FDA in April of this year, but then there was some issue with the supply. So there's a little bit of delay in uh, in um, using this therapy in operation in our uh, clinics, uh, but then um, there are other trials going on to investigate this treatment with other therapies to really improve the outcomes of our patients. Great. You also mentioned that immunotherapy was uh, something that uh, is is being used. Is that pretty standard now? Yep. So there's a two um, class of uh, immunotherapy in prostate cancer. Uh, one um, is a treatment called Cipulis OT. Um, you know, this treatment was approved in 2010. Um, and we also have another, um, you know, treatment called immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, you know, this is really for patients with uh, what we call uh, mismatch repair deficiency, uh, which is seen in about the 5 to 10% of prostate cancer patients. And these patients may be eligible to receive this immunotherapy. Dr. Joseph Kim is an associate professor of internal medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.